We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your wondrous works. Declare that your name is near. That's verse 1 of Psalm 75, which along with Psalm 76 are the psalms appointed for today, Saturday, May the 8th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm John Green, and I'm your host. Thanks for being with me today. I appreciate that very much. <clears throat> Looking today still, we're in the Book of Wisdom, the Epistle to the Romans, and the Gospel according to Luke. And we are going to look at the wondrous deeds of God. That's the thing that, that points more specifically to Him than anything else. And, and how is that? And it's, it's that He overcomes the laws of nature might be one way to say that. To say that, that he overcomes the laws of nature means that things respond according to his will. Not according to their own desires, not according to their own proclivities. In some cases, he overcomes and overpowers the laws of nature and then does things that we call miracles. Things that aren't supposed to be able to happen. Things like virgin births, things like resurrections. But in addition to that, we see things like the miracles of passing through the Red Sea, which is what um, Solomon is speaking of here in this passage from Wisdom today, which is Wisdom 19, verses 1 to 8 and 18 to 22. He's clear about these things. As for the ungodly, wrath came upon them without mercy unto the end, for he knew what they would do. How that having given them leave to depart, the Egyptians giving the Israelites leave to depart, and sent them hastily away, they would repent and pursue them. God knew this in the beginning, is what Solomon's argument is here, that he is omniscient, that he has foreknowledge of all things, that he knows exactly what's going to happen in that situation. He knows that one, they will send them out, they'll send the Israelites out, but he knows also that the, the Egyptians will repent of having sent them out and pursue them. For whilst they were yet mourning and making lamentation at the graves of the dead, following the, the death of the firstborn, the final plague, they added another foolish device and pursued them as fugitives when they had in, whom they had entreated to be gone. For the destiny whereof they were worthy drew them unto this end and made them forget the things that had already happened, that they might fulfill the punishment that was waiting for, to their torments, and that thy people might pass a wonderful way but they might find a strange death. For the whole creature in his proper kind was fashioned again anew, serving the peculiar commandments that were given to them, that thy children may be kept without hurt. As namely a cloud shadowing the camp, and where water stood before, dry land appeared. And out of the Red Sea, a way without impediment, and out of the violent stream, a great field. Wherethrough all the people went, that were defended with thy hand, seeing thy marvelous strange wonders." For, thy, for the elements were changed in themselves by a kind of harmony. Like as in a psaltery, notes change the name of the tune, and yet are always sounds, which may well be perceived by the sight of the things that have been done. For earthly things were turned into watery, and the things that before swam in the water now went on the ground. The fire had power in the water, forgetting his own virtue, and the water forgot his own quenching nature. On the other side, the flames wasted not the flesh of the corruptible living things, though they walked therein, neither melted they the icy kind of heavenly meat that was of nature apt to melt. For in all things, O Lord, thou didst magnify thy people and glorify them, neither didst thou lightly regard them, but did assist them in every time and place. And so his argument here is, is that the Egyptians saw in the plagues all the mighty works and the power of God. They saw that he was greater than any god they were worshiping at the time. Anything that they exalted was brought low. 
and it was brought low in order that they might see the stark contrast between those things that they had previously worshipped and the God who was clearly over all things, because he didn't just do these things, he called his shots in advance. He sent Moses to say, here's what's going to happen next. So it wasn't just as though these were some series of coincidences that happened. No, they are plagues, they are judgments sent by God against the Egyptians in order that they might see him and glorify him, that they might reject their false gods, and that they might follow after the true God. And, and his point here is, is that, that everything literally in creation cooperated in that time for that purpose. And it's not the only time that such things happen. And that's Solomon's point, is, is that what you can see throughout Israel's history, throughout the Bible, is, is that, that God reverses things and things work against their own nature in order to serve his purpose. In other words, that he controls all those things. That they don't just move at random and they don't just move according to the given laws that we discover that we call science. That he can overwhelm that science because essentially if you're playing a video game, then, then you, can, you can get beyond just playing the game to knowing the cheats, the way around the game. So that you can become the master of the game at some level because you know the cheats to avoid losing the game. And so here, that's the situation. God built the system. He's the architect of all things. And therefore, he knows the keys inside the system in a way that we'll never know those things. And that's Solomon's argument is, is that God, God uses those things and breaks them out of their nature into their supernature in order to serve his purpose on the earth. And so that explains, in the Jewish mind, it explains all the the miracles, or at least the things that we call miracles, and they're, they're only miracles because we can't do them, but he can, because he's the architect and the designer of all things. His intellect is greater than the sum of all things. So it, the, the point is, is that he can do things we cannot do because he knows things we don't know. <laughs> And so, therefore, those, that knowledge, that wisdom enables him to overcome the random laws of nature. But, but that's the knowledge that allows him to do that. But the wisdom is to do it judiciously, to do it when required, and not as an ordinary course of things. If he does it as an ordinary course of things, it doesn't get our attention in the same way. And so that's the point that Solomon's making here. Whenever your people needed you to take some dramatic action to prove yourselves to them and to the people who were persecuting them, then you did it. And the perseverance of God's people down the years, which is now about three plus millennia, is testimony to God's loving kindness and his ability, his power. So it's his goodness and his greatness are on display in the perseverance of his people. And we see here in Luke, what we see, the very first thing that Luke tells us is he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Well, it, they needed 
to be delegated that authority and that power to heal because they didn't possess it in and of themselves. It had to be delegated from one who does possess that authority. And the fact that Jesus gave them power and authority means that Jesus was the source of the power and the authority, that they didn't have it in themselves, that they had to receive it from him. But it also says that he had that power and that authority himself and delegated a portion of that to them. And then he says, don't bother taking anything with you on the journey. No staff, no bag, no bread, no money, and don't even have two tunics. Wherever you go, stay there, and from there, depart. And so he sends them out without any preparation. I mean, if we're going on a mission trip today, we spend forever preparing for that and, and make you know endless checklists to say we got to have this, 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 and this. we got to make sure we have all these things on board when we go. And Jesus says, no, just go. I've given you everything that you need. And I will provide for you everything you need along the way as you go ahead and do the work that I've given given you to do. And if they receive you, then stay there a while. If they don't receive you, then shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And so they did. They went and did the work that he had given them to do. And and it caught Herod, the Tetrarch's, attention. And he began to, to... Try and sort out who this Jesus is. He said, look, I have beheaded John. And people are saying that he is, that this person is somehow the John being raised from the dead. Other people say it's Elijah that he did this. And then there's prophets of old had risen and all this. And, and why would they think that? Why would they not think, why would, why would he not just think this is Jesus and he's new and different? Well, it's because he was doing a lot of the same things that people before him had done. But he's going to jump out of that box and he's going to go far greater than that. He's going to do things that even they could not do. And so <clears throat> the apostles had great success where they were, and they came back and they told Jesus all about it, and, and he rejoiced with them. And then he took them apart to a town called Bethsaida. So he's moving away from the crowds in order to give these guys some a break, a rest, a time to sort of debrief um, from, from the experiences they had just had. And, and instead, the people followed them there to this place. And so this crowd of people comes and we're told that it's about 5,000 in all. And Jesus says, uh, go ahead and feed them. Well, we don't have anything to feed them with. We've only got five loaves and a couple of fish. What do you want us to do? Go buy food enough to feed 5,000 people? And Jesus said, no, just have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And so they did so. And I'm sure they're looking and thinking, what in the world is he up to? Why are we having all these people just sit down here? Are we going to make a quick getaway? What are we going to do? And so he took the five loaves and the fish, and he looked up to heaven, and he said a blessing over those things, and he broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples to eat, and set before the crowd, and they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left was picked up, one basket of broken pieces for each disciple. So Jesus overcomes the scarcity that's there and makes it abundance. He's capable of doing that in our own lives as well. He's capable of of always taking whatever we offer him and, and using it for his purposes and then multiplying whatever it is we offer, and and it's true of our lives generally. We can't go and bear much fruit, he said yesterday, without abiding in him. Oh, Sunday, I mean. We can't do that. We don't know how to do that. We don't have the ability to do that. But if we place our meager gifts of our own um, devices, the things that we're capable of, if we give him back the gifts and talents that he has given us, and say, use them for your purposes, then he is perfectly able to take those meager gifts 
and multiply the impact of those gifts. But we need to be fully surrendered, fully sold out, and fully dedicated to His way and His will. And if we do that, then He'll take what we have and make it more than we could ever possibly imagine if we'll just give it all to Him. He's capable because He knows things that we don't know. He knows how to reach and touch the hearts of men and women with the words of the gospel. And he told them not to worry about it when they were called before tribunals and all that, not to worry about what you're going to say in advance because I'll give you the words to say when you need those words to say. And we can get all balled up in, do I know enough to to be able to articulate the gospel well? And if people have questions, do I know enough to be able to do at least some basic apologetics? And and, and that's not even the issue. That, That God says, don't worry about that. I got it. I got it. But what I need is you. I have everything else under my control, but I need you. I need your heart. I need your life in order to get the gospel out there. And if you do give him that, then he will multiply it for his glory and your joy. And so that's what we're called to be. And and Paul, in that passage from Romans, is saying exactly that thing there's a uh, there's a his principle is it's not the power of one that makes the difference here it's the power of one plus one plus one plus one so each and every one of us coming together and living in harmony he says we're we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up for christ didn't please himself but as it's written the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me and he says that, that what we should do is his prayer, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore welcome one another as if Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And, and what he's saying there is, is that if we come together in harmony and unity, if we don't set ourselves above one another, if we don't set ourselves below one another, that if we treat one another like brothers and sisters in Christ, and we live together in that kind of harmony, building each other up, foregoing our own desires in order to serve our brothers and sisters, then that power of that unity and that harmony will be greater than anything you could ever begin to imagine. It's not a sum, it's an exponentiation when we come together in that way. It's not simply an additive principle. It's not John plus uh, Elaine plus Suzanne plus um, Keith plus whoever. No, it's, it's you're exponentially increasing the power possibility in the church when we live together in unity and harmony because that itself becomes a witness. To the world, but if we're all building one another up, then then we're creating the kind of community that other people want to be a part of. And so we've got to to get back to that basic thing of understanding that that there's a power that God has to multiply the gifts we offer, because He knows the way to men and women's hearts. He knows the way of all things, and so we can trust Him for that. And it's all for his glory and not our glory. And so what we do is we offer ourselves in humility to one another, just as he offered himself up to be crucified on the cross. And in, in, in doing so, that seed went into the ground, died, buried, and was resurrected. And it became 
incredibly fruitful. It bore the fruit that it was intended to bear. That seed cracked open and did that. And that's what we are as the body of Christ. We are a seed that he can plant and he can multiply. It's an impact and it's effect on the world in such a way that the world can be changed. But the first requirement is we, each of us, have to offer ourselves, as Paul says, as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. And if we come together and we do that together, then there's incredible power that can be unleashed through that unity.